0: that word by your, illuminate, by for his openness to your spirit in this moment, that you'd guide him, lead him, uh, and that, Lord, we would be transformed in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you turn with me this morning to 1
1: Corinthians, chapter 1. It's so good to be back with you. We were part of Somerset West for, I think it was 10 years, 9 years, or 10 years. We were here, part of Liberty as well, leading out in Stillies. It's a great privilege to have been part of all the different things that God has been doing through New over these years. So thanks, Steph, for the opportunity to speak here this morning. Today, if you are living in a bubble you might not know, is Easter Sunday. And what's so special about Easter Sunday? Well, for most of us, if we really get honest about it, what's special about Easter Sunday is that we had Friday off and we have Monday off coming. It's the long weekend. But let's, let's ask this question, what, is, what does Easter really mean? Is it actually meaningful for me today? Is it, is it relevant? What is Jesus dying some 2,000 years ago, really? How does that affect my life? And so this morning, I'm just going to come right out and tell you what I want to do. I want to, I've entitled my message this morning, Hide and Seek. Hide and Seek. And this is what I want to do. I want to say that Easter matters because the events of Easter mean that we get to come out of hiding. Easter matters because this morning I'm going to speak about our deep desire to hide our failures and our fears and our frailties, but the fault we hide them with guilt and shame that it brings into our lives. And I want to speak about what, why what Jesus did matters because it breaks the power of guilt and shame in our lives. A friend of mine and a, a man who leads a church in the US, his name is Alan Frau, a great worship leader. He has this beautiful quote in one of his books If we are involved in a game of cosmic hide and seek, it is God who is seeking and we who are hiding. And we are constantly hiding, and I know this because I am too. For centuries, people have been hiding in the physical. So they, they're hiding so that they don't get eradicated as a nation. Or, or Anne Frank, hiding from the Nazis. Or maybe the bomb shelters in Syria today. But much more in our generation, in our time, in the Western world, we're hiding philosophically. We're hiding our true financial position. Drowning in, in debt and yet projecting this acceptable, pride-appeasing facade to those around us. Some of us are afraid to check our bank accounts. Hiding even from yourself is how ridiculous we've become. Hiding from responsibility. Have you heard the term BAM? It's a term that's been coined to describe the boy-man. BAM, the boy-man. And this delayed onset of adolescence, and it's unbelievable if you look at the statistics coming out of America about how this delayed onset of adolescence is is taking men further and further into their 30s, I'll give you a stat right now, before they take any responsibility for their lives. Here's a statistic, 48%, half the room, 48% of men aged 18 to 34 I'm 36, so two years ago, aged 18 to 34, play video games every day, on average, three hours per day. What are we hiding from? Well, maybe the place where you best associate hiding is in your marriage, and the cracks which you know are there, and the foundations are shaking, and yet... You hide to your friends and your family until we hear this often, this this phrase which we hear so often, wow, I never saw it coming. When are we going to realize we never do because people have become so adept at hiding what's actually going on in our lives? And right down deep inside of our DNA, in in the hard wiring of our systems is this insatiable desire. This overwhelming desire to hide from the world our failures and our flaws. and Scripture teaches that it's part and parcel of Adam and Eve and the DNA that we inherit from them. What happened in that moment that they bit the proverbial avocado as apparently it goes out in Somerset West? We believe in the apple, but we won't let that minor theological dispute get in the way. But what happens in that moment? Hey, you're naked. No, you're naked. What's naked? Well, we just feel shame. And so they hide. Shame, dreadful, heavy, unshakable shame. Suddenly the perfect world that Adam and Eve had experienced, the sinless love that they had with their creator, the distance between them and any evil comes tumbling down. And for the first time, just imagine this, for the first time Adam and Eve stand guilty before God. For the first time. For the first time, they feel shame, and they stand vulnerable before each other to the judgments and criticisms of another human being in their lives. For the first time, Adam and Eve are open to rejection and accusation from the person that they love. Hasn't that wreaked havoc in our marriages for century upon century upon century from this moment For the first time, Adam and Eve were wide open to the condemning accusations of the evil one. This beautiful paradise instantly transformed into a dangerous and scary world. And so they hide. They tremble and they wait in the bushes for their wonderful creator, who is now their righteous judge, to come for his evening walk in the garden. Adam, Eve, Where are you? Paul, Kate, Steph, Kaz, where are you? We're hiding, Lord. And every one of us is living in the same dangerous and scary world, have been hiding ever since that moment, because we too feel the deep chains of shame, of dreadful, heavy, seemingly unshakable shame in our lives too. Let me ask you, is this, is this just me? Is this just me? Am I just preaching to myself? What, what fills you with deep shame this morning? I think of moments in my life, things that I wish with all my heart I could go back and undo. Things that if I could turn the clock back and get into one of those special machines that take you back in time, and I would go back and I would try so hard to do something different in that moment. A moment I lied, a moment I was unkind, a moment I did a whole bunch of things that spring to my mind that fill me with shame. What's it for you? What's the thing you've never told anybody? Not your husband, not your wife, not your parents. Maybe it was a business deal where for a moment you took your eyes off God and you tried to provide for yourself and you did something deeply unethical, maybe even illegal. Maybe you hurt people. Maybe you lied to people in that moment. Maybe, friends, a deep sense of shame in our lives comes from something we had no control over, something that happened to us as an innocent child or an innocent bystander in some situation and it happened to us Or maybe it's a a secret sin. I watched a ten minute video thing on BBC. It was called it was called a generation raised on porn. It's the scourge of our generation. Maybe it's a secret sin, maybe it's deep deep anger which manifests just especially for your wife in the private of your home. Maybe it's hidden racism. You're not the guy who cracks the racist joke at the, at the briar, but in your heart, when you see people of different color, and I'm talking to you people who are, who are of dark complexion, I don't know what the PC word is anymore, but we can all be racist one to another. When you see someone of a different color, in our hearts, something stirs that is not of God. What is your shame? Well, I want to tell you this morning, you're not alone. Not just in this room, but in the Bible too. The Bible is full of such stories. I think of, I think of the woman in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, that Jesus meets at the well. She's had five husbands, five husbands. Now, Jesus says, the, woman you, the man you're living with is not even your husband. She's, just, she's checked out of marriage. She's just living with him now. She, her life is a disaster. And she comes alone in the midday sun to the well. What's she doing? The women come in the morning when it's cool to the well to draw their water, laughing. It's a social event in this time. And yet she comes in the peak midday sun at the worst time of day to go and draw water because she knows she will be alone. She knows that she won't have the judgment, the criticism, the pointing and the sniggering about this woman who's made these decisions. So maybe decisions have caused your shame. Or I think of King David, a powerful and a righteous king who made a huge mistake, abused his power to sleep with Bathsheba. And then long after the glow had faded, he gets word that she is pregnant. And this king, this righteous king, afraid, troubled, full of shame, desperate not to expose his wickedness, turns, instead of turning to God and repentance, turns first to cover up after cover up after cover up, which ends with the murder of Uriah. And yet we read of his anguish and his turmoil in Psalm 51 as he faces up to both his guilt and his shame. When I look at the word of God, I think of the woman with the issue of blood. In Mark chapter 5, for 12 years this woman had been ostracized. This doesn't translate into our culture. Issue of blood. I mean, it it just doesn't translate. What this meant for her is that the shame she would have carried is that she was not able to go into the temple of God. She was not able to socialize in normal social settings with friends or with family. All this time, unclean, uncomfortable, uncomforted. And then to add insult to injury, penniless. Penniless. Mark 5 says she spent all her earthly wealth to find a cure, but no doctor could help her. It only got worse. Desperate for Jesus' touch. But how could she ask? All the other people said, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they were loud, and they broke down the roof, and they lowered their friend down. And all these people that Jesus healed were loud and exclaiming their need of Christ. How could she do that in this society? So filled with shame. She couldn't utter a word, but she thought, maybe if I could get close enough to just touch him, I could sneak away and I would be healed. Maybe this morning, like her, there's nothing that you've done that's your fault, and yet you still feel the shame. And then how can we this morning not turn our thoughts to Jesus, our beloved Savior, who bore what must have been the most excruciating shame upon the cross. A torture designed, the crucifixion was designed to be excruciatingly painful and publicly humiliating. That's what it was designed to do. It was, it was intended at the crossways where the, where the towns, where the crossways, the most busy streets, they would put up a billboard. Effectively, they'd put up these these people on these crosses and they would say, If you lift your finger against the Roman Empire, if you commit a crime, this is you. And it was this grotesque billboard that the Romans would put up and humiliate these people to their death. It was the worst punishment that could beset a man or woman. You know, the nice little pictures of Jesus on a cross but with a loincloth. You know, it's More than likely, from all the historic accounts of Roman crucifixions, that Jesus was completely naked, humiliated. It's the equivalent today of tying you naked on the end to the busy road, except that people are walking and riding donkeys, so they aren't racing past getting a quick glimpse. They are looking at you. And even before the crucifixion moment, when we read in the Gospels what happened on this weekend, two and and something thousand years ago, we read that Jesus was beaten. He was spit on. He He was repeatedly mocked with the false crown of thorns pushed upon his head and robes thrown across his beaten shoulders. Jesus, King of the Jews, save yourself. Forced into a mock pantomime, but knowing it would not end with a closed curtain and a bow to the crowd and ovation. But knowing instead that it would end with his death, his excruciating death, and the tearing of the curtain in the temple on that day. Can you imagine the entire city turned against you? Laughing at you, screaming at you, delighting in your humiliation. Jesus knew Shame. Jesus, more deeply and more devastating than anything that we could know or feel, He knew shame. And so it's to Jesus this morning that we look, when it comes to our question of guilt and our question of shame and our question of hiding in the bushes, the one who suffered both without deserving either, And so, to understand how we are set free from these bondages, we must look to Christ and ask what happened on that humiliating Easter Sunday? And is Easter still relevant for me today? Now, you might be here this morning, and as we sing songs of the blood of the Lamb, we sing songs about incense rising. We sing songs of open up the doors, we're we're ready for you, and you think like a fight club scene, you know, like they're coming through the door. These are Christian phrases that we use, and you might have no idea what we're talking about. And then I come and I I speak about this shame-filled crucifixion of someone who's meant to be a Messiah, and you could be forgiven for saying, how ridiculous is this? Crucified Savior as a remedy for my shame? This makes no sense. You're an unthinking village of idiots. Maybe you, you're sitting here this morning, and if you weren't so driven by your personal embarrassment and your dignity, which you've learned to maintain, you'd love to stand up right now in this moment and shout out nonsense, or probably a less Christian version of that word, and storm out the back door because you think that I'm just talking rubbish. Maybe you don't find it as tough to believe, but. You find it deeply offensive how could how could God you know i 'll just level with you if if I sit, sat down with you for an hour after the service and a piece of paper and a pen, I reckon between us in an hour we could do at least a hundred good objections to God. What kind of God does this? How can this be love? Did Jesus have to die, and if he did, did we really have to do that? So to kill him like that, further, to know that you are first—you are not the first dissenter. And neither will you be the last, unless Christ comes in the next two seconds. You're still not the last. See, from the earliest teachings of this gospel, the so-called good news, both those who think it's absolute madness, and those who are deeply offended have been close at hand so you're in, you're in company this morning finally 1 corinthians 1 we're going to read together in verse 20 where is the one who is wise this is paul writing to the corinthian church where is the scribe where is the debater of this age Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Other versions say the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. The Jews wanted power. And Greeks seek wisdom. It must make sense. It must be clever. But we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God Is stronger than men. You see, in these remarkable verses, Paul is dealing with the reality that he's facing day after day after day. As Paul goes from a literal town to a literal town to a city to a city, just imagine being him. You arrive in this in this new city and you have this this news, this odd, strange news, which you're saying is gospel, which is good news about the Savior. You come carrying it and say, you're a Jew, so the first place you go is into the synagogue. But in the synagogue, they deride you. Instead of a hero's welcome, they deride you. A crucified Savior, what kind of Messiah is that? No, 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 Paul, no, That, that might be your Messiah. We're waiting for a Messiah who's going to overthrow the Romans. A shameful death for God's Son crucified? Don't you know the Torah says that he is crucified, as cursed? Are you saying that Christ is cursed? (gasps) Blasphemy! This is how the Jews receive him. And then he goes on with his killer punch to say, well, do you know that actually it's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well? At which point the Jews are, you are a fool. You are a fool. What kind of God allows himself to be crucified? We seek power. We seek signs. We seek overthrowing of the Roman oppressors. Your God is weak. So Paul turns instead to speak to the Greeks and the Gentiles. And this is how their frame of reference would have worked. They were used to a herald crying good news. But their herald would have cried about the emperor. He would have said something like this. Tom, Tom Wright, a theologian, says, Good news. We have an emperor, he would have shouted to the crowd. He has saved the world. He has brought peace and justice to all of us. He is our Lord. He is the Son of God. Long live Caesar, would have been the cry of the herald. Now you have Paul, this little diminutive man who was probably bald. A Jew, a despised race Jew sounding like he's masquerading as a a herald, as a royal herald. And he stands up and says, good news. And they're expecting to hear about an emperor. But he says, the world has a new emperor, and he's not Roman. You thought your emperor was God's son, but you were wrong. It's actually Jesus. Oh, and incidentally, Jesus was crucified and died. And the Greeks who seek knowledge and the Greeks who seek wisdom, they're incredulous. Who is this fool? Who is he? What good drink has this fellow been engaging with? Don't you know, Paul, that crucifixion is about the most shameful thing that can happen to a man? What kind of emperor is dead? What kind of empress? Crucified and dies. And Paul shouts back, no, 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 you don't understand. He was dead, but now he's alive. And now they know for certain that the man they thought was mad truly is. And so the Gentiles reject him. But for a moment, if you can lay aside all of your cynicism, if you can place your doubts just for a few minutes on the sideline for me, the remarkable thing in that all of this and all of this lack of power and all of this lack of wisdom, this perceived wisdom, something happens when Paul announces the gospel. Something happens. A strange and a backward to reason kind of thing happens it truly happens we read about it just a few verses ago in corinthians where paul is explaining what he's seen he says we know this we know the jews want this and the gentiles want this but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to gentiles but listen to this but to those who are called both jew and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god he speaks about it like this in other places too. I think of, I think of Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's a funny message. It's an odd message. You could be ashamed of it. But he says, I'm not ashamed of it because I see salvations coming from its power. See, what Paul is saying is that despite everything he's experienced to the contrary, despite this odd message from town to town, as he does what he's called to do and announces this proclamation of the gospel of a Christ who was crucified, who was raised, and who ascended to his Father, something happens. He's seen it again and again. It's not earthly standards of power and wisdom. It's quite the opposite. He knows he sounds like a fool. And yet... Men and women, somehow this insidious, creeping message refuses to die down. This good news, this crazy royal announcement made by this crazy man and and much more crazy people since, including today, makes something deep inside of men and women change. Really change. It goes into them like, a, like water down a desperately thirsty man's throat. It goes into them like air for a man who was drowning. And he comes up out of the water and his feet hit the gravel and he suddenly realizes he's safe. If any of you have nearly drowned, you know that feeling. And like air, it suddenly goes into your lungs. And you're filled with hope. You're energized. You're renewed. You're healed. It's miraculous. And to their surprise, the serial doubter, the hardened cynic, the five times married Samaritan woman, David in his deepest sin, the woman with the shameful issue of blood, suddenly finds, welling up inside of them, a deep astonishment of being loved. Of being seen completely, every nook and cranny of our lives. Put under a bright, bright light. Every sin, every shameful act, everything we can't even admit to our spouse is underneath this microscope, this bright light of God. And yet in that moment, we know that we are completely accepted, completely loved. The doubter is given grace to ask his questions and receives assurance of his salvation. Though he may yet doubt, he receives assurance of his salvation. This is the moment that Jesus calls born again. That's how he has to describe it. He's like, it's so, it's so crazy. It's like you're born again. It's like you were blind, but now you can see. It's like you were deaf, but your ears are opened and you hear a symphony. See, Paul has seen and felt the ridicule of the people, the derision, the rejection, and they have merit in what they say. But he has seen this too. He's seen this miracle of new birth taking place in front of him. And this is the experience that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. Where is the one who is wise? Where are you? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Richard Dawkins How has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, you can't think your way to God. You can't religious your way to God. You can't work your way to God. The wisdom, everything you can bring, the collective wisdom of the whole world, God in his wisdom says, that's not how you will come to me. It pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, and we seek something else. What do you seek this morning? What's your objection? If only God would. It's one of the questions I love asking at Alpha on one of our first or second nights. I ask my table, what would God have to do in order to convince you? Oh, you'd have to save my friend from cancer. Are you sure? Because I've seen people saved, and people don't always get saved. I've seen people healed, and people don't always get saved. What what are we putting before God? The, The Jews wanted power. The Greeks wanted wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Some of these things you only see on the other side. As the Holy Spirit stirs and calls you with faith, you you might not be able to make sense of it all. You might think, this is powerless. I don't understand what's going on here. But some of these things on the other side of salvation, when we've said, yes, God. We suddenly see with such clarity that all the wisdom in all the world is like nothing before our Father. That all the power, everything we thought was powerful, Russia and America, nuclear bombs and, and Korea, and all these things that we think are the power of the world, we realize collectively they're powerless before our God. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you be rid this morning of your guilt and shame? I wish I had a three-point plan for you, but this is the route open to you, friends. This is the route that Scripture makes available to us, the route that the Jews thought was powerless and the Gentiles ridiculed as foolish. And whatever you're thinking in your Western mind, add that in there. This is the route that is open to us. Friends, let me tell you that on Easter Sunday, what Jesus did is that He rose from the grave, defeating every sin, every death we could face. Christian, I want you to listen closely because I know that you, like me, we get blasé and we think that we know all this, but our lives deny that we do. If you don't know Christ, listen even more carefully to me this morning because your life depends on it if it's true. He took guilt, your guilt, My guilt, the sinless, spotless one who had never sinned, took upon him every guilt, the guilt of the whole world upon him. And he says, I take the punishment in their place. See how the Lord just orchestrated that music, especially for us there in the background. but Jesus paid with his life the debt that our life was meant to pay. We were meant to die for our debt and Jesus did it for us. Now guilt is a judicial word. Do you know what I mean by judicial word? Think courtroom. Think judge. Think one day, you standing in front of the judge with your heart in your mouth as you wait for sentence to be passed over you. Are you going to be declared guilty or are you going to be declared innocent and the rising panic in you as you wait for this moment? In Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, it speaks about a day just like that where every single one of us will be judged. And we will stand before that throne, and the judge of all, the great judge, will declare either innocent or righteous over us. But if you're a Christ follower, what does he declare in that moment in Revelation? He says, innocent, justified, not one shred of guilt upon you. But my friend, if you are not a Christ follower this morning, he declares you guilty. This is what I want you to get deep into your hearts. What I'm asking God to get deep into my heart. As a Christ follower, you need to follow this. You can no longer be guilty. You cannot be guilty. You may feel guilt. You may feel shame. Shame is like the moon and the sun. If guilt is the sun, shame is the reflection. It's the moon. It reflects guilt. But when we realize our position in Christ, that we're justified, it's impossible to be guilty. You are hidden in Christ, Jesus. That's the consistent metaphor of Scripture. Not what we taught when we were children, that Jesus comes and lives in my heart. There's only one reference to that. All the other references are, we are hidden in Christ. For us to say that we remain guilty is to say, Christ, your sacrifice was not enough. What you did cannot remove the stains upon me. And likewise, friends, as someone who does not follow Christ this morning, you cannot remove your guilt. You may sit on a psychologist's couch and for a moment you may be able to remove some of your shame, but you cannot remove your guilt. It's impossible, and you can try everything in your power. And someday, maybe today, you refuse to say, God, I want to come to you. But in 20 years' time, when you've tried every other thing that you can try, I beg you to remember this moment, and I'm telling you, you can do nothing to remove your guilt, but come to Jesus. This is what Christ has done, already finished. And this is why we get to come out of hiding. This is why Easter matters today. If you're struggling with shame, Christ follower, I want to push you back to the gospel. We believe. I want to push you back to the word of God. I want to push you back to thinking, to meditation, to asking Him, what does your gospel mean? And understand what it means that we've been justified, not just on that future day, but He takes that future revelation judgment, that thing is going to happen in the future, and He says, I give it to you now. A future reality made present. The devil's going to continue to accuse you. But a greater one intercedes before God's throne for you. Right now, you are justified, declared, righteous. But Paul, you don't understand what I've done. No, no, friend. You don't understand what he's done. It's done. It's finished. He's risen. And with his rising, everything, and I mean everything, Everything is washed away in that flood. Adultery, murder. What's the worst thing you can think of? Pornography, child abuse, theft, gossip, slander, white lies, even stealing from your mom's cookie jar. Guilt washed away. C.S. Lewis says in closing, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Celia brought a word during our worship about letting go of blood, washing us clean of a garment that we want to keep certain patches of. I know there's areas in our lives that if they were to see the light of day, if you had to watch some of the stuff I've done on the screen behind me, I would be deeply, deeply ashamed. I know there's areas of our lives that we want to keep in the dark, those patches on our garment that we say, the blood of Jesus can kind of touch all the rest of this, but this, stay off. And she ended by saying something like this, God is saying, my blood is your garment. My blood is your garment. And then Steph read that beautiful passage about the blood of Jesus washing us white. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. Christ follower, I want to give you an opportunity to to bring yourself before your Father again and say, Father, I am guiltless because of what you have done. Help me with my shame. Help me with my shame. Help me see that I am completely guiltless before you. Not stop sinning, we're going to keep doing that, but guiltless. Guiltless. And if you're here, and I'm speaking especially to you this morning, and you don't know this Savior, I implore you, as the Holy Spirit stirs faith inside of you, and something as I'm speaking resonates inside of your heart, I ask you to respond to this Savior, to stop your trying, to stop your, your effort and your human effort, to try and get up to this God. You can't do it. He's made a foolish way. He's made a weak, crucified way because the weakness of God is stronger than men and the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom. Can I pray for us as we close? We bow our heads. Lord Jesus, this morning we stand convicted by our own consciences knowing in our own minds and our memories the thoughts of what we have done, but we also know, those who know you, that you have done more, that you have set us completely and utterly and absolutely free. Father, would you come in this moment and remind us that we are guiltless because Jesus bore our guilt and didn't bear it to death, but, but bore it to resurrection again and defeated it. And waits for us to be with Him one day. Oh God, these chains are so real. They've gripped some of us for so many years. I think of the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, doing everything she could to get rid of this shame that she had. And yet one touch from Jesus without Him even knowing that she was coming, just one touch from our Savior, healed. Daughter, arise, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Father, would you come and take those little mustard seeds of faith in our hearts here this morning and grow great trees out of them, Lord. We would be the oaks of righteousness spoken about in Isaiah. And then while eyes are bowed, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask you if you're here this morning, and maybe this is like your twice a, twice a year gig where you come to church. Unless there's a wedding. I want to ask you if you're here and something in your heart has resonated with what I've shared from the Word of God. And you want to know this Savior. I want to ask you just to slip your hand up. And you can do that right now. Thank you. Anybody else before we close this morning? Anyone else feeling stirred in their hearts, not sure of all the answers, but saying, Father, I want to come before you this morning and surrender my life. Let's stand together. We're going to sing in closing. I know who you are. You lifted your hand. I'm going to come and find you, and I'll pray with you after the meeting this morning.
0: God bless you. For those of us that are Christ followers, communion is a precious, precious thing. The night Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is my body broken for you, took the bread, broke it, and then he took the cup, said, this is my blood shed for you. And we know from the book of Leviticus, and we know from the belief of Judaism, and we know from what we understand, that blood is given for the atonement of sins what paul is talking about the shame the guilt that we live under that none of us are exempt from that that we all have something somewhere that we have done that we're ashamed of and that that in a sense is god's gift to us that we have a consciousness of that it's the moral compass god's put inside of us and it's that contravention of god's moral law causes the guilt and shame to rise up from but it's also the anomaly that separates us from god and so he wants to unite us with god once again and the way he says i can do that is by atoning for your sins and the way i atone for your sins is through the blood and as we go take communion this morning as an echo of what paul said folks our sin our guilt our shame is no longer an issue because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Easter, that's why today is such a big deal. And so as we go and take communion this morning, we're going to slip off, we're going to go get communion, we're going to come take it by ourselves, and then we're going to sing one final song. But as you go grab communion, come back, sit by yourself, and as you sit by yourself, take afresh the things that you feel disqualify you from God, and in that remind yourself that when you say that my sin is greater than Christ, you're selling God what he can and cannot do. But that little cup comes and tells you that Christ is greater than anything that you could do that could disqualify you from his love. And so, will not you go grab communion. This is a beautiful, beautiful day in our calendar, and as we take communion, it's a beautiful act. It's an act of covenantal renewal. In effect, we're reminding ourselves of who we put our hope in. It's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. And um, and I just want to I just want to remind us that that Jesus Christ is more than just a ticket to heaven. He's more than just an absolution of sin it says you can live in a clear conscience and even then for some of us a license to go carry on sinning no, Jesus Christ didn't just die and rise to life again, he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God Almighty and in the right hand at the right hand of God Almighty he had in his hand two keys one for the kingdom of earth and the other the kingdom of heaven, those keys speak of authority and he says to his disciples and he says to us Authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Go now forth, go out. And so, what we live in is not just the absolution of, of guilt, but it's also an invitation to the authority of living in the freedom and the new life of Christ Jesus. I pray that you would live in that today, that you'd live in the fullness that Christ has for us. As we finish this morning, let's sing one last song and let's lift our voices loud, high, won't you stand with me as we praise God, as we enthrone Jesus as the one true King, as the one who died on the cross, who unites us with God Almighty, who comes and gives us authority in this life to live in the fullness that God has for us.